Amy Grant once described him as the uneasy conscience of Christian music. Andrew Peterson, reflecting on seeing him in concert, wrote this on the, on the 20th anniversary of his death. He said, those of you who saw him live know what I'm talking about. There was nothing quite like it. Something about his concerts made it easy to believe that God was real and that Jesus actually loved us the way the Bible says he does. There was something about his semi-detached look on his face when he sang that convinced us that the God he was singing about wasn't an idea, but was an actual person, a person he knew. He once wrote a lyric as he cried out to God to save him that said this, Save me from trendy religion that makes cheap cliches out of timeless truths. And another that still challenges me. And there's a loyalty that's deeper than mere sentiments. And a music higher than the songs that I can sing. The stuff of earth competes for the allegiance. I owe only to the giver of all good things. So if I stand, let me stand on the promise that you will pull me through. And if I can't, let me fall on the grace that first brought me to you. And if I sing, let me sing for the joy that is born in me these songs. And if I weep, let it be as a man who is longing for his home. Rich Mullins did not write hymns for congregational singing. He was a singer-songwriter who wrote personal prayers and, and set them to his own music. And in my opinion, he was one of the finest singer-songwriters of the modern era. Arguably, his masterpiece was an album entitled A Liturgy, A Legacy, and A Ragamuffin Band. And the final song of the album, Land of My Sojourn, it captures the life of the Christian living in America. Listen to this one stanza. He says, nobody tells you when you get born here how much you'll come to love it and how you'll never belong here. So I'll call you my country, and I'll be longing for my home, and I wish that I could take you there with me. We love living in this nation. We love the freedom that we enjoy here. We got up this morning, and it was a, another gorgeous day. And it's the Lord's day, and we were, have the freedom to assemble. We can come together freely. We can put a sign out front and tell people that this is a church. We can carry our Bibles openly. We also love the beauty of the fields and the trees. We love the history and the geography of our nation. We love the open spaces. We even love, at least some of us, the incredible cities. And while our nation might look like a mess if you watch the news, it's not really a mess in most of our daily lives, is it? Most of us are just going about our business, and while there are some inconveniences that we are currently facing, especially this year, we all know that this will soon pass, and most of us will be able to get on with regular life soon. Yet with as much as we love our country, this world is not our home. For Christians, this, this world is not our home. We're stuck between two worlds, or maybe a better way to say it would be that we're, we're caught between two kingdoms, the kingdom of this world and the kingdom of heaven. This is where we find ourselves in the scriptures today in a, in a face-off debate between the current representative of the kingdom of this world and, and the perfect and permanent representative of the kingdom of God. And while you have probably heard of Pontius Pilate, probably you've heard of him before, that name probably rings a bell, even if you didn't grow up in church. John, however, in his gospel has not yet introduced him to us. And so before we get to Pilate, I think it would be good for us to just read an account of Jesus' trial before Caiaphas, who was the Roman recognized high priest that year. Because if you remember from what we said last week in our study of John chapter 18, uh, John skips over the trial before Caiaphas. And, and, and by the way, I just want to mention this. 
That, that skipping over that trial is not meant to be a deception. It's not meant to be proof that there are discrepancies between the gospel accounts. The world likes to throw out there that the, the Bible is just filled with contradictions, but that's not true. John simply leaves out the trial before Caiaphas in order, I think, to blur the identity of the true high priest in his readers' minds because Jesus is the true high priest. It's not Annas. It's not Caiaphas. It's not somebody else. It's Jesus. I want to read this um, trial account. It's not very long. I want to read Matthew's account. So flip over to Matthew chapter 26. We'll start here. This is the account of the trial before Caiaphas. So he's arrested in the garden. He's brought into custody. He is brought before Annas, who was, um, had been the high priest, but Rome had removed him from power. They didn't like him. But he still kind of wielded power behind the scenes. And his son-in-law is Caiaphas. He's the real high priest, or at least the Roman recognized high priest that year. So legally, the trial before Annas is, is not legal. It's a, it's a secret trial before the real power brokers. The real trial is before Caiaphas. So um, I want you to see here a couple of things, not only the, what the charges are that Jesus is brought up on, but also I want you to see here how they treated him. So this is coming into what we're reading today. So Matthew 26, I'm just going to read verses 57 to 68. Matthew 26, 57 says this, <clears throat> Then those who had seized Jesus led him to Caiaphas, the high priest, where the scribes and the elders had gathered. And Peter was following him at a distance, as far as the courtyard of the high priest. And going inside, he sat with the guards to see the end. Now the chief priests and the whole council were seeking false testimony against Jesus that they might put him to death. But they found none, though many false witnesses came forward. At least two came forward and said, This man has said, I am able to destroy the temple of God and to rebuild it in three days. And the high priest stood up and said, Have you no answer to make? What is it that these men testify against you? But Jesus remained silent. And the high priest said to him, I adjure you by the living God. Tell us if you are the Christ, the Son of God. Jesus said to him, You have said so, but I tell you, from now on, you will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power and coming on the clouds of heaven. Then the high priest tore his robes and said, He has uttered blasphemy. What further witness do we need? You have now heard his blasphemy. What is your judgment? They answered, He deserves death. Then they spit in his face and struck him. And some slapped him, saying, Prophesy to us, you Christ, who is it that struck you? Now jump down to chapter 27, just the first two verses. When morning came, all the chief priests and the elders of the people took counsel against Jesus to put him to death. And they bound him and led him away to be delivered over to Pilate, the governor. So Jesus has been condemned for blasphemy. And the Jews are continuing to conspire to put him to death. And the only way that they can do this is by sending him to Pilate, the governor. But if you know anything about the political climate of the Middle East in general, um, and ancient Judea in particular, this region, you know that there has long been tension um, there. And particularly during this time, there is a tension between Rome and Jerusalem, between the Roman authorities and the Jewish leadership. So let me give you just a little bit of political background in order to explain where Pilate comes from. Okay? So just a little bit. You probably know some of this. But Israel, at the time of Jesus, is under Roman rule. The Roman Empire is stretching across um, much of the world. Roman occupation of Israel started in 63 BC. And it was the last in a long line of invasions that started with the Assyrians, then the Babylonians, then the Persians, and you can read about them throughout the Old Testament, followed by the Greeks under Alexander the Great. The Greeks gave the region um, a common language, which is why the New Testament is written in Greek, and even brought in their culture, the Greek culture, which the Romans just adopted as their own. 
So by the time of Jesus' birth, the Romans had established in Israel a system of government that kind of consisted of, of Roman overseers and local leaders who held and exercised power in the name of Rome. So at the time of the birth of Christ, the family of Herod the Great grew to prominence and the, and the Romans had made Herod to be king over Israel. King in quotes, okay? Herod was a puppet king. He ruled Israel on behalf of Rome. He was known for his massive building projects throughout Judea, including, uh, probably most famously, his expansion of the second temple in Jerusalem, which is sometimes even called Herod's Temple. This is the temple that Jesus frequented. And although Herod was Jewish by religion and Jewish by tradition, Herod and his family were actually Edomites. They were hated by the Jewish people because of their tyrannical rule. So, for example, it was Herod who put to death all the young male children of Bethlehem. They hated Herod. Well, after Herod the Great died, his so-called kingdom was divided into various sectors. And a couple of his sons would rule over some of them. Um, And one of Herod's sons, Herod Antipas, was responsible for the beheading of John the Baptist. You've heard of that Herod as well. Another of his sons, whose name was Archelaus, was so brutal in his exercise of power in his sector, which contained Jerusalem, that Rome replaced him with one of its own governors, a man by the name of Pontius Pilate. And he held office from 26 A.D. to 36 A.D. So for 10 years, right around the time of Jesus' public earthly ministry. So this is where we get Pilate, the governor, as opposed to the kings, Herod, that we read about earlier in the gospel accounts. And it is this Pilate that will come here today to represent the kingdom of this world. So John chapter 18, now I'm going to read verses 28 to 38. This is where we'll spend the rest of our time this morning. John 18, verse 28, picking it up where we left off last week, says this, Then they led Jesus from the house of Caiaphas to the governor's headquarters. It was early morning, and they themselves did not enter the governor's headquarters, so they would not be defiled, but could eat the Passover. So Pilate went outside and, uh, to them and said, What accusation do you bring against this man? They answered him, If this man were not doing evil, uh, we would not have delivered him over to you. Pilate said to them, Take him and judge him for your, by your own law. The Jews said to him, it is not lawful for us to put anyone to death. This was to fulfill the word that Jesus had spoken to show what kind of death he was going to die. So Pilate entered his headquarters again and called Jesus and said to him, are you the king of the Jews? Jesus answered, do you say this of your own accord or did others say it to you about me? Pilate answered, am I a Jew? Your own nation and the chief priests have delivered you over to me. What have you done? Jesus answered, My kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, my servants would have been fighting that I might not be delivered over to the Jews, but my kingdom is not from this world. Then Pilate said to him, So you are a king. Jesus answered, You say that I'm a king. For this purpose I was come, and for this purpose I, I was born, and for this purpose I have come into the world, to bear witness to the truth. Everyone who is of the truth listens to my voice. Pilate said to him, What is truth? Let's just stop and ask God to help us to understand these things. Lord, I pray that you would help us to understand that Jesus is the truth. He is the way, the truth, and the life, and that no one comes to the Father except through him. I pray that you would give us ears to hear today, Lord, that we might understand these things, that we might be transformed into Christ-likeness. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So early in the morning... When the Roman officials would, this was typical, they would typically meet with their subjects at daybreak, at dawn, early in the morning. And the Jewish leadership now brings Jesus to Pilate and they demand a hearing. And so far in the story, this is not that uncommon. Pilate would would not have seen this group showing up at daybreak as an intrusion necessarily. 
especially because the priests were sort of the, the aristocracy, so to speak, who, who controlled all of Judea for the Romans. And so they, they pretty much did what Rome wanted because they didn't want to lose their power either. In a nutshell, the priests were afraid of Rome. They didn't like them, but they, they saw, they knew that Rome uh, would come down on them very hard militarily if they didn't do what they wanted, and they liked that power. So they were afraid of them, and they um, kind of did what they wanted, what Rome wanted. And because these were the local kind of native leaders, they were able to get an audience with the governor without an appointment. And one other point as we kind of look at the background here, the last thing that Pilate wanted was a riot. Because he, Pilate, had to answer to Rome as well. And so when a crowd of angry Jewish priests showed up at his door, he works hard here to calm them down and keep the peace. Because during this entire time, during these years, and particularly during the Passover when, when everybody would travel to Rome and it was packed, Judea and Jerusalem, Jerusalem rather, Jerusalem is a powder keg. And yet when they come to the governor's headquarters, which is also called the Praetorium, this is Herod the Great's old palace, they wouldn't enter. Look at verse 28 again. They led Jesus from the house of Caiaphas to the governor's headquarters, the praetorium. It was early in the morning, and they themselves did not enter the governor's headquarters so that they could not be, would not be defiled, but could eat the Passover. So I, we have gone through a lot of background today. I've given you a lot of background already. But the important thing that I want you to see here is at this point, we are here in, in, uh, at Jesus' Roman trial. So now is beginning Jesus' Roman trial. And this introduction, verse 28, this does three things. First, it points out the hypocrisy of the Jews. They are a, these men, these Jewish priests, these leaders here are hypocrites. See, in private, amongst themselves, they clearly did not follow God's law. Especially when following the law didn't benefit them. So, as we saw last week, in their own trials, they did not bring two or three witnesses to testify against Jesus as the law required. Beyond that, they even struck him, mocked him, and even as we read in Matthew, they sought out people to give false testimony. They didn't care about God's law. They didn't care at all, especially in private, just amongst themselves. In private, they clearly broke many of God's laws, apparently without any kind of remorse. But here in front of the Romans, they resume their external holiness. This is really exactly what Jesus has condemned about them all along. Flip back to Matthew just one more time. Look at Matthew chapter 23. I'd like to read the whole chapter. I'd probably, let me, let me just start. I'll read some of this. But it continues throughout this whole chapter. Jesus said to the crowds and to his disciples, Matthew 23, verse 1, The scribes and the Pharisees sit on Moses' seat. So do and observe whatever they tell you, but not the works that they do. For they preach, but do not practice. They tie up heavy burdens hard to bear and lay them on people's shoulders, but they themselves are not willing to move them with their finger. They do all their deeds to be seen by others. That's exactly what we're seeing here. They do all their deeds to be seen by others, for they make their phylacteries broad and their fringes long, and they love the places of honor at feasts and the best seats in the synagogues and greetings in the marketplaces and being called rabbi by others. But you are not to be called rabbi, for you have one teacher, and you are all brothers." And call no man your father on earth, for you have one father who is in heaven. Neither be called instructors, for you have one instructor, the Christ. The greatest among you shall be your servant. Whoever exalts himself will be humbled, and whoever humbles himself will be exalted. But woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you shut the kingdom of heaven in people's faces." 
For you neither enter yourselves nor allow those who, uh, who would enter to go in. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites! For you travel across the sea and land to make a single proselyte, and when he becomes a proselyte, you make him twice as much a child of hell as yourselves. Woe to you, blind guides, who say, if anyone swears by the temple, it's nothing. But if anyone swears by the gold of the temple, he is bound by his oath. You blind fools! For which is greater, the gold of the temple or that which is made the gold sacred? And you say, if anyone swears by the altar, it's nothing. But if anyone swears by the gift that is on the altar, he is bound by his oath. You blind men, which is greater, the gift or the altar that makes the gift sacred? So whoever swears by the altar swears by it and by everything on it. Whoever swears by the temple swears by it and by him who dwells in it. Whoever swears by heaven swears by the throne of God. By him who sits upon it. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrite. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites. All throughout this chapter, just jump down to verse 27. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites. For you're like whitewashed tombs, with, which outwardly appear beautiful, but within are full of dead people's bones and all uncleannesses. So you also appear, outwardly appear righteous to others, but within you are full of hypocrisy and lawlessness. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites. This is what Jesus is, what we see here, what Jesus had said there is what we see here in John chapter 18. When they come to Pilate's house, they won't enter, even though they had been breaking God's law all along. Well, the second thing really this introduction does is not only does it point out their hypocrisy, but it shows us that, that while they have taken care not to defile themselves by entering the home of a Gentile so close to the Passover, the Jews have ironically prepared for the arrival of the true Passover by delivering here this true Passover lamb to be put to death. They're delivering Jesus up to be sacrificed for their own sin, for our sin, for all who would trust in him. And then finally, and I keep saying this because it's important, the Holy Spirit, through John's writing here, is once again subtly reminding us that this is a cosmic battle. This is a cosmic battle. See, it's not so important for us to know what time of day they arrived at Pilate's house. It's important in the sense of this is, these are real events. They really happened. It puts it you know, on the calendar of history for us. But really what we are supposed to see is that a new day is dawning. A day, the day of the victory of Jesus over the world. It is breaking, that day is breaking as the sun begins to come up. It was early in the morning. He just kind of mentions that. Early in the morning of the day of his crucifixion. Early in the morning of the day of his victory. Early of the morning of the same day when he would proclaim, it is finished. A new day is dawning. And yet it's on the charge of blasphemy that the Jews bring Jesus to Pilate. Because Pilate, in effect, Pilate is Rome here. He is Rome's representative. He rules as Caesar's representative in Jerusalem. So until Caesar decides otherwise, Pilate's rulings are Caesar's rulings. Now, remember how throughout John's gospel, um, I've tried to be careful to point out that John often calls or refers to the Jewish leadership simply as the Jews. He generally refers to them negatively as well. He's not talking about all ethnic Jews there. I want to be really clear about that. We should be as Christians clear about that. Um, John himself is ethnic Jewish. He really is talking about the unbelieving, corrupt Jewish leadership. So here, picture the scene now. You have the Jews outside, you have Rome inside, and Jesus in the middle. And here we are with Jew and Gentile, the whole world coming up against Jesus. This is about two distinct kingdoms. 
And it's not about Rome versus Jerusalem. It's much bigger than that. This is two kingdoms. And these two kingdoms are not the two kingdoms that we would expect. They're not the two kingdoms that the disciples have been expecting a battle between and who were willing to give their lives for. That was Rome versus Jerusalem. That's what they thought. This is not the Roman Empire versus the people of Israel or or Jew versus Gentile. This is the kingdom of this world versus the kingdom of heaven. And Pontius Pilate here is actually a, a perfect representative for the kingdom of this world. And so we know a little bit about him. I've told you a little bit. We know it both from Scripture and from historical sources. And all of the evidence points to Pilate being both morally weak and also cruelly brutal. He ruled Jerusalem with an iron fist, which often often instigated outrage and revolt by the Jewish people. And then he would savagely suppress that. He's the perfect representative of the kingdom of this world as it comes up against the kingdom of God because he clearly shows us what gives the world its power. Pilate Pilate held on to power and influence and authority by force. As all government leaders do, he relied on uh, tax revenue. He relied on pomp and, and ceremony of the office. He relied on prestige on alliances, on the manipulation of the press. He relied on propaganda. His power came from a a skill in macroeconomics and I'm sure a a skill in public speaking and the art of persuasion. But Pilate is also a perfect representative of the kingdom of this world because, and get this, he's a middle manager. Pilate's a middle manager. He's working for someone else. He's doing Caesar's bidding. But this is a cosmic battle. Pilate's a perfect representative for the kingdom of this world because all of this is driven by sin and Satan working behind the scenes, working in the darkness to cause death and destruction. But Jesus Christ needs none of the things that Pilate uses to maintain power. Jesus doesn't He doesn't need your money. You know that? Jesus doesn't need your money. He doesn't need propaganda. That's not what we're doing right now. That's not what the Bible is. It's not propaganda. He's not working to manipulate you. Christ needs none of this. He just simply says, I am. I am. Look at this passage again. The Jews are clearly looking for a quick hearing, a quick execution. In fact, when they show up at his headquarters like this, at Pilate's headquarters, it looks like they're they're probably trying to to bully or force Pilate to just go along with their plan. Just quickly take Jesus and kill him. But Pilate doesn't immediately go along with them or with that plan. He has the upper hand and He's going to play this by the book. So verse 29. Pilate went outside to them and said, What accusation do you bring against this man? They answered him, If this man were not doing evil, we would not have delivered him over to you. Pilate said to them, Take him yourselves and judge him by your own law. You you can hear the conflict between these two. Pilate tries to kick Jesus back to a lower court. This needs to be sorted out at the Sanhedrin, is what he's saying here. He seems to say, this is is not important enough for me to get involved. This is beneath me. On the one hand, he's working to maintain authority over the Jews. He's giving that authority to deal with them back to them. But on the other hand, he's also trying to stay out of it in in an effort really to keep the peace of Jerusalem. Evidently, Pilate didn't take these matters as seriously as the Jews did. Because look at the rest of verse 31. The Jews said to him, it is not lawful for us to put anyone to death. This is because Rome, Pilate is their representative, Rome took away this law, this ability from them. 
See, the Mosaic law, God's law, gives them the right to put blasphemers to death. But Rome, in an effort to control the region, said, no, that will be up to us. And so right here, Rome, Pilate, becomes a representative for the kingdom of this world in the battle against the kingdom of God. They are going to him and saying, we need this man put to death and you're the only one that can do it. The Jews, the leaders of God's chosen people, have now, right here with this admission in verse 31, have made an alliance with the ruler of this world to put to death the Son of God. The enemy of my enemy is my friend. That's what's happening here. Pilate has the authority either to let him live or to put him to death. The life of Jesus of Nazareth is in the hands of a Roman governor named Pontius Pilate. Except it isn't. It isn't. Look at verse 32. This was to fulfill the word that Jesus had spoken to show by what kind of death he was going to die. John inserts this this little bit of a theological commentary right here to remind us, I think, of two of Jesus' previous statements. The first one, we've said this before, it's John chapter 10, verses 17 and 18, when Jesus says this, For this reason the Father loves me, because I lay down my life that I may take it up again. No one takes it from me, not even Pilate. But I lay it down of my own accord. I have authority to lay it down, and I have authority to take it up again. This charge I have received from my Father. And then also in chapter 12, verses 31 to 33, Jesus says this, Now is the judgment of this world. Now will the ruler of this world be cast out. And I, when I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all people to myself. And then John adds, He said this to show by what kind of death he was going to die. Namely, that he would be lifted up onto the cross, that he would be lifted up and die in the, in the Roman style of execution, crucifixion, as opposed to the Jewish style of execution, which would have been to be driven down into the ground with rocks to be stoned. He's going to be lifted up. This is an important reminder. Verse 32, when John puts this in here, this is an important reminder of that cosmic battle that is taking place even as Pilate exercises his authority. Look at how he picks it up in verse 33. So Pilate entered his headquarters again and called Jesus and said to him, Are you the king of the Jews? He moves the questioning inside. This might seem like a minor point, but he's moving it away from the Jewish people who would, would not go in. He is uh, taking control. He's not going to be swayed by the mob. At least, it doesn't look like he's going to be. And so he brings Jesus inside. The Jews are standing outside demanding a quick trial. He brings him in and he questions him himself. But look at his question. Are you king of the Jews? Pilate, Pilate knows what's up. He knows what's really going on. And, and as the story continues to, to develop in chapters 19 and 20, this title, the king of the Jews, this phrase, it's going to be very important. N- notice, this hasn't been an issue. This isn't why he's there. Jesus is there. He's brought up on charges of blasphemy. He's making himself out to be God. But they know, and Pilate knows, that the threat is an earthly threat, or they think it's an earthly threat. This title, King of the Jews, is important. Just, uh, I want to point out that the idea, the concept of the kingdom of Christ um, is seldom mentioned in John's gospel. It, it is in the other gospel accounts. It's prominent. It's a big part of Jesus' ministry. But John doesn't really play it up very much. We can see it. It's in chapter 3. When Jesus is talking to Nicodemus, he says, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. And then in chapter 12, he is first anointed by Mary, and that has connotations of being king. And then immediately after that is the triumphal entry. 
when the crowds proclaim Hosanna. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, even the king of Israel. But now it's Pilate who brings this concept front and center. Are you king of the Jews? I I don't want to jump too far ahead, but just look down at chapter 19, verses 2 and 3. Notice who's making a big deal about this. And the soldiers twisted together a crown of thorns and put it on his head and arrayed him in a purple robe. And they came up to him saying, Hail, King of the Jews, and struck him with their hands. Jump down to verses 14 and 15. Now it was the day of preparation of the Passover. It was about the sixth hour. And he said to the Jews, Behold, your king. And they cried out, Away with him, away with him, crucify him. Pilate said to them, Shall I crucify your king? The chief priests answered, We have no king but Caesar. And even though Pilate believes that he is in charge of this situation, you can, you can just hear the mockery in everybody's voice in those passages. We'll get at that in the coming weeks as we get into chapter 19. But even as Pilate believes that he is in charge of this situation, he is not. See, just as Jesus did to Annas back in verses 20 and 21 earlier, Jesus challenges Pilate's question. He, notice they're questioning each other back and forth here. Look at verse 34. So Pilate has said to him in verse 33, Are you king of the Jews? And Jesus answered, Do you say this of your own accord? Or did others say it about me? Did others say it to you about me? Jesus is suggesting that Pilate is being manipulated by the Jews. Did you come up with that yourself, or did they tell you that? Remember, the Jews are Pilate's subjects. Jesus is playing the same kind of mind games that Pilate is playing, actually. But, but Jesus is much better at it. Jesus is actually sitting in judgment over Pilate here. With this question, when he, when he responds with this question in this way, Pilate actually gets a little bit defensive, and he, and he tries to take control again. Pilate answered, am I a Jew? Your own nation and the chief priests have delivered you over to me. What have you done? And the you is what is emphasized there. You, what have you, we're not talking about me, we're talking about you here. What have you done? You're a Jew. You're the one being accused by the Jews. Pilate is trying to distance himself from all of this Jewish mess. That's how he views this. But as much as he tries to get away from this, he is right in the middle of it. Jesus has been delivered over to him, but this trial has already shown that there are, in fact, just simply two sides. This isn't just a headache for the Jewish people. This is the kingdom of this world versus the kingdom of God. And so Pilate says here, we're not here to talk about me. What did you do? And this question, what did you do? What have you done? This question sets up an important statement regarding Christ's kingdom. He's going to say something very important here in verse 36. Jesus answered, my kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, my servants would have been fighting that I might not be delivered over to the Jews, but my kingdom is not from this world. Now, This statement, verse 36, has huge implications. Um, But for today, I want to bring your attention to just just two truths that this points out. I just want you to see two. The first one is this. He is a king. He is a king. He says, my kingdom. He is a king. Let me read you a sampling of verses from both the Old and New Testaments that describe Jesus as king. I want to start with God's covenant to David in 2 Samuel chapter 7, verses 12 and 13. When your days are fulfilled, and when you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring after you, who shall come from your body, and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. 
And verse 16 says this, And your house and your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me. Your throne shall be established forever. Now, just a side note here. This is why the genealogies in Matthew and Luke are so important. Because Jesus is the rightful heir to the throne. That promise is about Christ. But Isaiah chapter 9, verses 6 and 7 also prophesies about a Messiah. Really prophesies about his incarnation, his coming in the flesh. For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder. His name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. And of the increase of his government and of peace, there will be no end. On the throne of David and over his kingdom, to establish it and to uphold it, with justice and with righteousness, from this time forth and forevermore, the zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. Prophecy that the Messiah will be king. Think of this statement of the Magi. Matthew chapter 2, verse 2. Where is the one who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star when it rose and have come to worship him. Or the proclamation of Hebrews chapter 1, verses 3 and 4. He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. And he upholds the universe by the word of his power. After making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high, having become as much superior to angels as the name he has inherited is more excellent than theirs. That sounds like a king. The Apostle Paul uses a specific phrase in his letter to Timothy. In 1 Timothy chapter 6, verses 13, 14, and 15, when he says this, he says, I charge you in the presence of God, who gives life to all things, and of Christ Jesus, who in his testimony before Pontius Pilate made the good confession, to keep the commandment unstained and free from reproach until the appearing of our Lord Jesus Christ, which he will display at the proper time, who is blessed and only sovereign, the King of kings and Lord of lords. Or how about John's greeting um, at the beginning of the book of Revelation? Begins the first couple of verses says this John to the seven churches that are in Asia, grace to you and peace from him who is and who was and who is to come, and from the seven spirits who are before his throne, and from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn of the dead, and the ruler of kings on earth. He is a king. Jesus Christ is a king. John continues, to him who loves us and has freed us from our sins by his blood and has made us a kingdom, priest to his God and Father, to him be glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. This man, standing before this worldly, temporary governor, he lasted 10 years. This man standing before this temporary governor who is bound and powerless, this man is a king. In fact, he is king of kings. And when he said these words, Pilate, Pilate had to have been incredulous. <laughs> you, you're the king of the Jews. You're tied up. At this point, he's been, we read in Matthew and in John, he's been at least slapped twice, punched, he's been mocked, he's been spit on, and he's bound. And he's standing before Pilate, and Pilate says, You? You're the king of the Jews? Verse 37, when he, in the ESV, there's a question mark after that. It says, Then Pilate said to him, So you are a king? That, that really should be an exclamation point. So you are a king. People think the same way today. It's a mocking exclamation, right? We understand that. Oh, hail king of the Jews, they'll say in chapter 19. People think the same today when they think of Jesus. Jesus was a good teacher. He told us to love our neighbors. Isn't that nice? But king, he's a good spiritual example. He's meek and mild and unoffensive. 
But the world doesn't believe that he commands any armies. The world doesn't believe that he is someone to be taken seriously. And let, let, me, let me give you one more passage. See if this sounds like meek and mild Jesus, good teacher that the world likes to talk about. I'll give you a hint. It's Revelation 19, verses 11 to 16. Listen to this. Then I saw heaven open, and behold, a white horse. The one sitting on it is called Faithful and True. And in righteousness he judges and makes war. His eyes are like a flame of fire, and on his head are many diadems, crowns. And he has a name written that no one knows but himself. He's clothed in a robe dipped in blood, and the name by which he is called is the Word of God. And the armies of heaven, arrayed in fine linen, white and pure, were following him on white horses. And from his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations. And he will rule them with a rod of iron, and he will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God the Almighty." On his robe and on his thigh he has a name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. See, he is a king. And he also has a kingdom. Yet his kingdom is not like any other. This is the second thing I want you to see from this statement here that he makes. He is a king and he has a kingdom. And his kingdom is not like any other. His kingdom is not of this world. His kingdom is a spiritual kingdom. His kingdom is not like the kingdom that Pilate represented. Pilate's kingdom is, is fading. It's temporary. It's condemned even. The Roman Empire is one of the longest lasting empires in the history of humanity. It really can only be compared with the ancient Egyptians. But where is it now? It's gone. Pilate, his reign lasted for 10 years. And he's gone. The Caesars, gone. Pilate's kingdom is fading, temporary, and condemned. But Christ's kingdom is of heavenly origin. He reigns with spiritual and heavenly authority. He has the authority of the creator of all things. That means that not only does he have authority over this life, but he also has authority over our souls. And he reigns through spiritual power. So think of the irony of this, situ of this statement in this situation here. Listen to this statement. Matthew 10, 28. He had said, And do not fear those who kill the body but cannot kill the soul. Rather fear him who can destroy both soul and body in hell. Think of those words as Jesus is standing bound before the king of this world. The representative of the Roman government. He ain't afraid of Pilate. All of this is why Jesus can confidently tell Peter to put his sword away and explain there in verse 36 why his servants are not fighting. And the simple truth is that Peter can put his sword away because Jesus has a sword of his own. We read about that in chapter 19 of Revelation. It comes from his mouth, it says. Where else is the word sword used in Scripture? What's it talking about? The Word of God. Yet Pilate's response in verse 37 or 38 makes it clear when, it said, when he says, so you are a king, verse 37, it makes it clear that he believes that he has skillfully trapped Jesus into admitting that he is a, sees himself as a king. I have trapped you, and now you can stand condemned. So you are a king. Pilate said to him, or Jesus answered, you say that I'm a king. For this purpose I was born, and for this purpose I've come into the world, to bear witness to the truth. Everyone who is of the truth listens to my voice. Remember what Jesus had said earlier about the truth? I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. 
Pilate is looking here. Pilate said to him, what is truth? You can, sell, you can sense some resignation in Pilate's question because the paragraph ends there and it says, we'll pick this up next week, but he turns around, goes back out, what is truth? And he just walks out. Pilate is looking for a statement of truth, but Jesus is standing before him as the person of truth, the king of truth. There are only two kingdoms, the kingdom of this world and the kingdom of God. And we are faced with a great temptation that is to love the kingdom of this world. We are faced with the temptation to be caught up with the things of this world, the kingdom of this world. Nobody tells you when you get born here how much you'll come to love it. But Christians, you'll never belong here. So we can call this our country, but please be longing for our home. So if I stand, let me stand on the promise that you will pull me through. And if I can't, let me fall on the grace that first brought me to you. And if I sing, let me sing for the joy that is born in me these songs. And if I weep, let it be as a man who is longing for his home. As Christians, our home is the kingdom of God. We cannot forget that. If we weep, let it not be because we're sad about what is happening in our nation. Let it be because we are longing for our home. Pilate asks this last question. What is truth? What is truth? Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. And I could tell you one statement of truth. As Christians, we hold to a truth claim that Jesus died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures, that he was buried and that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures. We believe this. We believe this to be 